All right. Well, Kevin, thank you for joining us. It's great to be on your show. I've been a big fan. We've met several times. I know you and David have hung out and it's one of these things where um, every time I think I have a conversation with you, I walk away and, and, and think like, wow, I wish I could have more time and I wish I could have taken better notes. And here we are recording for posterity. So now we get that. That's our strategy with with Acquired is <laughs> then we, we have people on the show who we want to take notes from. <laughs> well, I feel very honored uh, and it is an excellent strategy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, we're, we're sitting here, I in Seattle, David in, in San Francisco, and Kevin down in LA on uh, Friday. What is today? The 22nd in the afternoon. We just saw a couple of more S1s drop with uh, Zoom and Pinterest. So excited to see what plays out there. And then obviously with, with Lyft coming next week. But in the meantime, before that insanity begins, we're going to have a, a fun conversation today with Kevin. And uh, David, I'm going to kick it over to you. Who is Kevin? Kevin, for those who don't know, is a partner at Upfront Ventures, which is uh, the premier and largest venture firm based in LA. He's been there for many years and helped build it into, um, over the last several years, into really the kind of national force it's become today, which we'll talk much more about on the show. At Upfront, Kevin focuses on digital health and life sciences, along with gaming and digital media, and really, uh, which we've talked about a bunch. Maybe we will get into some of his gaming obsessions <laughs> later in the show if we have time. <laughs> Hope so. But yeah, super honored to have Kevin on the show and uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, I actually just fresh off the plane out of uh, San Francisco from the Game Developers Conference. So <laughs> fresh on my mind. <laughs> oh man, GDC was always one of my favorite conferences. All right, well, we'll get into gaming in a minute. I want to hear your uh, Google Stadia impressions desperately. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to. Tell us about Upfront. So most LPs listening to the show uh, uh, have probably heard of you guys, know about Upfront, but they may not know that Upfront was started back in 1996 by Eve Sisterson, uh, not as Upfront, but as Global Retail Partners. <laughs> how, That's uh, quite the ring to how, it. Yeah. <laughs> how did yeah. that happen? <laughs> what was the state of play back then? Yeah, very, very different. 96 was actually the year I moved to LA from Shanghai. Obviously very different world back then. And Eve, who's still with us um, and has really been a driving force over the last, I guess now, what, 22, 23 years, he effectively, and a couple of earlier partners as well, built out GRP because they had invested in some incredible you know, retail innovation companies back in the day, um, places that we all still shop at, like Costco and Starbucks and PF Chains, Jamba Juice, uh, Pet Smart, etc. And the idea to start a venture fund, a brand new fund, was it didn't seem like there was that much innovation um, still happening on the retail storefront site. And instead, there was this thing called the internet, and it turns out maybe people will buy stuff online. So that was kind of the point um, of the fund, and, and that was really the genesis of, of how it all started in the mid nineties. Because that was what I was uh, uh, super curious about whether whether you were looking to invest in in traditional bricks and mortar upfront but uh, but it was always it was always about the the intersection of retail and and the internet from the beginning exactly and then you know obviously then you realize if you want to buy something online you need a website right you need payment methods uh, you want to market to people you want to keep records of them that's really sort of how we then pretty much transitioned into just a full stack software tech investment firm and that's how we've been for the last you know, 20 plus years. E-commerce was a very interesting entry point. Uh, we still do probably more than our fair share of, you know, what I like to call commerce-related investments. And that could actually be everything from a direct-to-consumer brand to, you know, a logistics platform to use your latest fancy machine learning-based customer segmentation tool <laughs> or whatnot. Um, but um, even, even coming full circle uh, back to you and I were talking about a couple of weeks ago uh, about the wing, which you guys yeah. just invested in, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. If, if you sort of really expand your mind a little bit about a retail thesis, that's a very broad thesis if you want to think about the whole value chain, because you got to think about marketing the products and processing the sale and allowing those people to do marketing analytics and you know, basically anything you can think of that's that's in the B2B realm would qualify under sort of this broadened brick and mortar retail theme. Exactly. Exactly. You guys were investing sort of in the run up to uh, the first first dot com uh, boom and then through the bust and uh 
you know, memories of Madrona, a similar life cycle of, you know, up and down in, in Maritech where I interned uh, my summer in business school, you know, same uh, there was a great winnowing of, of venture firms after the dot com bust, but but you guys, along with you know several other like Madrona and Maritech, of kind of the strongest folks, sort of survive and come back out in the mid two thousands. And it was it was right around then that your partner Mark Schuster joined. You guys obviously had a great track record and you know investment performance before and and since then, but he really started putting you guys on the map, kind of nationally uh with with his blogging you know how how did he end up joining and uh, how did that strategy kind of evolve for you guys and mark's been an incredible mentor to me and, and really all of us at the firm you know back then it was that was quite an unusual strategy right i mean i think fred wilson had started not long before that brad feld um and really he came from it from sort of an entrepreneur's angle he had started two companies before that both of which actually uh up front had backed his second company, he sold to Salesforce, so it was in San Francisco, and he was living there. And Eve kind of convinced him that, hey, you should maybe think about jumping to the other side, and and maybe there's this dual office thing we can do where you know come join us and spend some time down in LA, get to understand the investment business a bit, and then you can spearhead something up in San Francisco. Um, obviously, where you've been and where all your network is, et cetera, et cetera. And turns out he was able to convince his wife to move down and then loved it so much that he just stayed. Such a hard sell, Southern California. Such a hard sell, right? <laughs> um, and then the blogging idea, um, he had been reading some of the stuff that you know the other partners I mentioned have been putting out. He's always been a very good writer and he's not the type that you know, write something and then goes back over it, you know, 10 times and editing before sort of just putting it out, you know, sort of that kind of more direct, authentic voice worked quite well. And so one thing led to another and he just started writing prolifically. And, and that was his strategy, right? Much like, you know, the incredible things that you guys have done with this podcast series of getting to build out a network and, and get to know other people. And it was kind of an excuse for him to be able to chat with anyone from the entrepreneur side or the venture side or the LP side. Um, and he still does it. So. And for LPs who are listening right now, who who are sort of uh, acquired LPs, that is, uh, who are newer to sort of tech or VC or startups in the last five years or so, this has been copied 11 times over and pushed in every direction. And for every question you possibly have, there's there's 11 people's medium posts on their thoughts opining on the subject. This was just not the case. I mean, this was VC was closed most old school VCs leveraged information asymmetry to their advantage. They were not writing about it. They were sort of the, the the tribal knowledge was a competitive advantage. And this is just this was ludicrous to see, you know, Fred Wilson, Brad Feld, Mark Schuster really like open sourcing it and saying, here's what I think, and really winning over the trust of of entrepreneurs and other, you know, VCs and would-be board members and everyone around the table to say, look, like I, I I trust you because I really understand how you think rather than you trying to leverage this for your own gain. I think important to understand the context there. I'm curious since uh, you, you joined right around that time. I mean, what were the dynamics like internally as Mark, you know, I mean, very quickly, you know, as we've said, became like prolific, you know, writing almost every day, very long blog posts about like what was totally inside baseball at the time. And it did great things for the firm. And like I said, I think really did put you guys on the map. But <laughs> what was it? Were people nervous internally or like, you know, <laughs> did you guys realize the power? Yeah, I joined in 2012. Um, so at that point, um, he already had a pretty decent following, you know, because I worked at a startup before that. And, and when I was thinking about, you know, doing more in the startup land and potentially looking at something on the venture side, um, I had already come across his blog and found it super useful. Um, and I think, you know, I obviously wasn't alone. A lot of other folks sort of liked his more direct style and him shedding some lights on the industry. It was obviously an experiment, but very quickly the firm realized what do we have to hide anyway, right? At the end of the day, if we're going into entrepreneurs and trying to get a meaningful stake in, a, in their company and telling them that we're aligned with them, if they have no idea sort of how the actual venture business works and how we all make money and how we get paid and, and what motivates us and, and our own careers and how does it work inside a firm, you know, it's, it's only fair that they know that so they can pick, they can pick the right partners for themselves. The outcome of all that is reflected in your in the new name uh, that you guys chose shortly after you joined. But I want to make sure we ask uh, a, a little bit later in the firm life cycle. You guys 
brought on Chameleonaire as an entrepreneur in residence. <laughs> How awesome was that? What was it like to work with him? <laughs> yeah, um, it was kind of amazing. He he started showing up to the office quite a bit. You know, he, he <laughs> was, was coming before he was an EIR. Yeah, because he would. He's known Mark for many years, and 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 people who know him knows that he's he's been angel investing for a few years before that. Um, it was just very interesting in the startup community. And so you would see him, you know, taking meetings in the office. And then next thing you knew, um, you know, he and his partner was going to start a company and uh, we were going to try to help them, you know, best we can. And it was a type of company that, you know, serve what he really understood, which is, you know, sort of how complex and how voluminous the interactions can be between celebrities and fans and, and all his, you know, sort of initial, pilot customers, right, would be effectively in Hollywood. Um, and so, you know, we just felt like we've gotten to know you over the years. Super excited that you're finally ready to jump into the company building phase. And uh, if we can be helpful, come sit at our office. You can sitting on pitch meetings. You can see what other people are building. You can get some insights on st- companies at different stages and how they hire. He really leveraged that. Like he and his partners um, were actually in the office every week. On top of, you know, he was still doing other stuff, right? He was obviously still investing. He gets requests all the time to go do events and speak somewhere or, you know, be part of show, et cetera. Um, so kudos to him for sort of now I'm ready to start a company. I'm just going to do it and, and spend all my time on it. What ended up happening to that company? Still around. They raised a seed round a year and a half ago, a year ago. Oh, nice. Um, What's it called? Yeah. Yeah. The original holding name for the company was X Empire. And then as he built out the product and got a lot more customer feedback, he was trying to, obviously he was trying to pick a name that resonated with his audience and it's called Convos, C-O-N-V-O-Z. Yeah, the kind of stuff that, uh, you know, we would have entrepreneurs in residence at uh, Madrona in Seattle. <laughs> very, very, very different. Uh, that's uh, super, super cool. Um, and the kind of stuff that happens, you know, <laughs> in LA, not, uh, may- maybe in San Francisco it can happen, but not in Seattle. Slightly before that, but but also, I mean, I, I remember when Chameleon Air, you know, joined you guys. This was a big thing that you know Mark wrote about, and that you guys talked about as part of the summit too. In uh, the middle of 2013, you made a bunch of big announcements all at once. You closed Fund Four, which is a huge achievement. <laughs> having um, I remember at Madrona, um, you know, Fund Four was like it's the kind of point in a venture firm's life cycle where like the uh you know you can raise fund one is you know that we just did at wave is you you sell a you sell a dream fund two is like okay are you doing kind of what you said you'd do and then uh fund three but especially fund four is like you have to actually be showing real performance from the early funds um so it's kind of a huge milestone to get to that point you guys moved offices from century city to santa monica and then the biggest thing you changed your name to to upfront from uh from the old grp that must have just been an insane amount of work <laughs> for the year or two before that, leading up to that. Like, how did it all come together? I joined Q4 2012. I think it was October, or September, or something like that. And we changed our name, like you said, mid 2013. It was, well, first of all, I guess in some ways, lucky because I would have been terrible at this. Um, I did not directly work on the brand change. <laughs> um, <laughs> we went through a lot of different agencies and ultimately picked a great one to help us with that. And really my colleague at the time, Jordan Husson, um, who now is uh, VP of strategy at one of our portfolio companies, Appeal, he kind of took on that assignment and worked a lot with the partners to figure out, you know, really every aspect of a rebrand, right? Um, and, and that's obviously the name that's our branding, our website, our messaging to the external market, our messaging obviously before that to our own LPs, to our portfolio companies, et cetera. Um, it was a lot of work. That's pretty much all he did for those for those eight months. Do you remember what the impetus of it was? Like what started the tornado of that, of you know, shifting office, changing name, raising a new fund? Like what was the first of the dominoes that then said, you know what, actually we need to be different in all these ways? Yeah, I mean, all of it is to get us closer to entrepreneurs, right? And I think our brand at the time and still is, is, you know, WYSIWYG, right? What you see is what you get. Being in Century City, that's literally the land of bankers, lawyers, and Hollywood agents, <laughs> not not the land of startups. <laughs> um, and so that was why, you know, hey, we should move to Santa Monica, really. Santa Monica, the whole West Side at the time was sort of the epicenter for all things startups in, in LA. And now, you know, it still is a huge, dense and, and clustered area. And obviously it's not expanded beyond that, but 
that was really important. Uh, the name itself, I mean, like you ask people what GRP means or really any three letter acronyms. Um, it's just not as memorable. <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> and you kind of like lose out on that opportunity to tell, you know, tell a narrative about yourself, right? Like I'm sure we would tell all of our portfolio companies, you know, pick a name that people understand kind of what you're trying to do, the problem you're trying to solve, who you're trying to sell to, or at least one aspect of it, right? Versus like if we had portfolio companies that had acronyms, I think everyone would be like, please hire a head of marketing. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a part of it. Um, and then, and then lastly, actually, it's also, you know, we have been in LA the whole time and really about sort of six and a half years ago around this time, um, that was an LA was, I would argue, sort of getting attention again. Obviously through the dot-com boom, there were actually quite a few VCs down here. There were quite a lot of companies that got built and, and had good exits. And then was the dot-com boom, you know, sort of that wave, you know, quieted a bit. And then this was really the time where people felt like it seems like people are building more and more companies again in Southern California. Um, it seems like people are starting to move down here. Snapchat had obviously just become like a global phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, along those lines, you know, if we're if we are to be affirmed to be associated with LA and we want to you know push you know all of LA, um, yeah, we should have a name, right? And this is a chance for us to tell that story in a fresh way. So, so all of those factors together made it. You know, I think if you ask any marketer, it would have been like, yes, this would have been the perfect time to rebrand. We dove into it, and it was a lot of work, but it paid off. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about this. So one thing that I've heard that, that's through the grapevine and, and and not not from anyone uh, at Upfront. So I wanted to ask you directly, was that the name in part at least comes from the upfronts that happen when TV shows uh, show an early peak to advertisers sort of before the world gets a look, they get to see it before anybody else. This person was telling me that, you know, it's, it's very much like that, that Upfront sort of sees stuff first, both uh, they see companies before they really sort of go out to pitch other people, but also they sort of like see what's coming before uh, the the rest of folks. Is that at all true or, or did you pick it for completely different reasons? That's a small part of it. I mean, what we wanted in the name was obviously one that it rolled off the tongue and it's something that's easy to remember. Two, we wanted, we wanted it to stand for something that's related to our values. And three, um, we wanted to have at least some sort of connection to LA, right? Um, and it's sort of what you pointed to is kind of that third part. Um, like, for example, one of the other names that we were that you know sort of made it all the way towards the you know towards the end i think if i remember correctly it was dogtown ventures that's actually the sort of colloquium term name for venice but but again if you do something like that's just purely geographical then again people might have the misconception of like all you ever do is that geo <laughs> uh, and obviously you know we invest nationally and and have been since we started um, but but really the more important piece is you know that sort of value component right and then again it's to what we discussed earlier in terms of you know, how do we be more transparent, you know, with our entrepreneurs? How do we show them that uh, this is a firm where, you know, you should hold us accountable for that because it's in our name. And and if we're not being upfront with you, then um, yeah, we're not going to do very well as a firm. So. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through 
literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout Quarter's. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R no e q u a r t r dot com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter i remember reading it at the time but uh in preparing for chatting with uh with you today we uh i went back and um read mark's of course because mark like basically live blogged <laughs> this whole thing and uh i read his his post announcing all, all, all of the announcements from from 2013, you know, the new fund, the move, and the the rebranding. And he talked in it about the conversations with your guys' LPs <laughs> throughout all this. It sounded like, you know, it, it mostly went well, but he said there was, you know, one LP in particular that was like, you guys are changing way too much all at once. Like, this is like crazy. What are you doing? And like, uh, I'm surprised to hear it was only one knowing LPs, not acquired LPs, of course, but <laughs> limited partners in the venture ecosystem, you know, by and large tend to be like fairly conservative, very large institutional investors. I mean, it makes sense. They're, they're large pools of capital, like university endowments and the like are first and foremost in the capital preservation business, you know, and then venture is the, the high risk, high return portion of their of their portfolio, but by nature, they are, you know, <laughs> tend to be much more risk averse than VCs. It was extreme for a firm to change so many things all at once. Like, how did, uh, how did you guys think about, were you nervous about how, you know, the conversations were going to play out with LPs? We love our LPs. And, you know, we obviously talked to them and discussed with them about all these changes and, and they were pretty much all on board. Right. And, and I think fundamentally it comes down to I think what LPs are most sensitive to is, are you changing things for the right reasons? And two, how are these changes going to affect uh, your actual you know, investment strategy and performance, right? And so I think that, that's an important part, right? All the things I just talked about earlier about why we wanted to be more, uh, more transparent uh, and put our brand out there and, and talk about LA and all those things, that's obviously all brand positive and, and it helps, you know, hopefully bring entrepreneurs closer to us. The actual investment strategy part, that never changed, right? Like from the beginning, we were lead oriented early stage investors. Uh, we weren't telling them that, you know, was this was these changes, we're now going to try to dabble in other areas, we're going to bring on a lot more people and then try to do things differently, right? I mean, we told them we wanted to expand the team, but also we expanded the dollar amounts of the fund um, correspondingly. So ultimately, if you look at per partner dollars, it basically hasn't changed. And it means fundamentally our strategy to be, you know, early and lead um, and take board seats like that never changed. And so I think that, you know, that obviously um, was a very important constant uh, and a strategy that, you know, our LPs believed in and continue to believe in. And to dive into that a little bit more specifically, what is that dollar amount per partner? Uh, what is the total fund size? And what does that end up looking like in terms of number of companies that each partner leads per year? Yeah, so right now we're on fund six. Um, it's four hundred million dollars. It was raised almost a year and a half, or we started deploying it almost a year and a half ago. You know, you four hundred divided by six, and we end up doing about thirty-five investments, maybe up to forty per fund. Um, and so, if you run the math, then it's effectively each partner is making two to three investments a year, right? And and I think you know when you're going in early and leading with two to three investments a year, you end up in a position where you're not, you know, one, you have good ownership in all your companies or most of your companies. And two, um, you also don't end up with, you know, 15 board seats, right? Or 12 board seats, but five seat deals and two, you know, later stage deals, right? And, and kind of running around with your head cut off. You know, our whole strategy and really sort of how much we reserve, right? I mean, 
call it roughly two thirds that we reserve for follow ons. It's all meant to, you know, for us to be able to continue to work with, you know, these 35, 40 companies through good times and bad and really be able to spend enough time with them. That's, you know, from the dollar side strategy. And then from the people side as well, it's all about how do you get additional leverage, right, uh, to the investment team. And, and, you know, part of that was expanding our junior investment team. Before I joined, we had historically had typically one to two associates on the team. And, you know, when you have only one to two, obviously more of their time is locked up in working on transactions and deal support and things like that. Then we expanded the program and started thinking about grooming from within as well. And, and hence, you know, now we typically have three to four at any point in time, right? And now we are principals as well. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we wanted to add more leadership uh, in various functional roles that are obviously critical to building startup companies. And that's, you know, sort of how we over the last six years brought on our COO, uh, how we brought on our, you know, amazing head of marketing, who's done it at large companies, startups and agencies, brought on our head of talent most recently, um, who has, uh, you know, done talent and recruiting at Hulu from, you know, a few hundred people to thousands and then left was Jason to join, uh, to start Vessel, uh, through the acquisition. That's why we have a, you know, a head of platform who then hired an engineer because we're building out tools internally for us to be more efficient. Right. So all of those was, you know, part of, it's obviously you're growing the, uh, the asset center management, but at the same time, we're ramping up our ability to use that capital and support our companies in a better way. This is a total sweeping trend, I think, in the sort of Series A especially world, where uh, VCs are broadening out their platforms. It's basically this trade where uh, partners are willing to be more generous with with uh, management fees of, of taking on significant operations, and obviously it probably carry as well, but really building out um, something that if you're a startup, you start to think about like, okay, this has a, a higher burn rate, but is that higher burn rate worth it? You know, Are we getting a lot of leverage on spending this money to be able to improve in all these ways. Kevin, you gave a few examples there, but you know, f- firms today are not five people who are making decisions in a room. And, and I, spe- I think you guys are, are kind of pioneering this too. There's just so many different jobs to be done in so many different ways that, uh, that a firm like Upfront can really help entrepreneurs. Exactly. Kevin, you said two to three deals per year per partner. And, you know, it's not exactly that. It's going to be less sometimes, more sometimes. But I think it's really important to, to think about that because that's not an obvious thing when you see a fund size or a, a number of partners. Um, and David, you know, you're sort of similar in that one to two deals per year. If you're building a relationship with with a venture capitalist, know that they're only writing a big check and, and leading a, a deal a handful of times a year. That That's important to sort of understand in an expectation setting when you're going out to, to raise a round. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I always tell entrepreneurs that, you know, you're not only competing within companies in your space when it comes to getting the attention and interest of, of investors, but really you're competing against every other way they can spend time in every other industry with every other company that's your stage earlier than you, after you, right? Like it's, yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> Before we get into talking about the LA ecosystem and how it has evolved over the last, you know, well, since this time, <laughs> perhaps I think the like uh, most extreme and yet incredibly coolest thing that you guys have done as part of this rebranding and big transition is the summit, the Upfront Summit. Like for listeners who who aren't familiar with this, so you guys Upfront puts on the Upfront Summit every year which is a major conference. Well, Kevin can talk about it, but it started as, you know, your annual meeting. So venture firms, you know, from Madrona to, I assume PSL does this with the fund now. We're about to have our first one at Wave uh, in June. You're required in your legal agreements with your LPs to have annual meetings where you bring all your investors together and you update them on the performance of the fund and the uh, goings on at the firm and whatnot. And usually these things are like, terribly terribly boring (laughs) for all involved but upfront uh you guys have completely transformed it and made it like so awesome so uh tell us a little bit about how all that came together you hit one of the key points um which is annual meetings are not exactly the most exciting thing in the world and you know obviously if you're an lp and you've been at it for a while and you have a whole portfolio of managers and you go into these things you know, every month, um, it really the format starts to look awfully similar across the board. And 
and they are incredibly boring. I still remember the first one we did was pretty traditional. Um, it was at, I think everyone fit into a hotel ballroom. And then I think we all had dinner across the street. And we had a, you know, some of our portfolio companies obviously talk about what they've done, try to give, you know, the LPs uh, sort of more direct view and, and hear it from the, you know, mouse of the horse. Um, we had some, I think, if I remember correctly, other entrepreneurs that were not in the portfolio, but, you know, they've been part of the LA ecosystem for a long time and talk a little bit about their views and how things have been changing. But really the goal was uh, twofold, right? One, obviously being able to build more of a relationship with our LPs. Um, and then two, you know, how do we talk about LA in a better way, right? And then we really felt, you know, things were changing rapidly. A lot more companies were going to be started in Los Angeles. It was still at the time a geo that was relatively underlooked. You know, I would say even by VCs and then sort of by extension, you know, the LPs largely, I would argue, think, oh, you know, we've got all the coverage we need because look at how close LA is to San Francisco, right? Um, and, <laughs> you know, there are plenty of there are plenty of VCs that we've already backed and and, you know, they have some exposure to LA and, you know, why do we need to go to LA to, to learn more about LA, right? Um, and we wanted to change that. You know, really the only way you can do that is not, you know, talk to the LP in their office, right? And do it on a slide deck of like, look at these great logos in LA, right? Uh, or look at this chart that's going up and to the right. Um, <laughs> it's to actually get them, <laughs> it's to actually get them in front of, you know, the people who are making all the changes in town, right? And that's both obviously mostly entrepreneurs and then also uh, all the venture investors, the corporates in town, et cetera. Um, so that became kind of a driving motivation for us. And, and we started thinking about, well, does our annual meeting have to be only open to our own LPs? Like we want more LPs to come here. Why don't we open it to prospective LPs? If we're going to have some people from the community come and speak, why don't we have it open to more community members, right? more entrepreneurs, other VCs here as well, right? And if we're going to do that, I mean, ultimately we want money from elsewhere too, right? Like we don't want to be the only fund um, or we don't want this room to be the only people investing in Los Angeles. Why wouldn't we want, you know, our peers in the Bay Area or New York or Boston, et cetera, to come down and see what's going on in LA firsthand as well, right? So that's kind of, how we started to build out our Upfront Summit. And, and really over the, the years, it became sort of, you know, from a single day event to two day and then now a three, pretty much a three day event. And the way we structure it is we have the first half day that's, you know, only for LPs, both our own and prospective LPs. Um, and actually the one that we just had in January, there were, I think, 200 or a little over 200 LPs. Um, coming from all over the country and, and, and some from international as well. Um, and that's crazy. I mean, like a typical venture firm, you know, would have, when I think about instant number of institutional LPs, you know, at Wave, we have a handful. At Madrona, we had, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20. Like to have 200, like that's incredible. Yeah. And it keeps growing every year. <laughs> Turns out there are a lot of LPs. It's funny. It's like the merging these two trends. So one is like the the sort of platform concept you were talking about earlier where like it's more than just picking startups. It's really sort of like building this broader ecosystem and like what better way to um, sort of spend money and resources than by making yourself the the center of a thesis, which is invest in Los Angeles and, and you guys bring everybody together to see what LA has to offer. But it's also this thing that David and I have been talking about over and over again. It keeps coming up that to do something great, you have to take a risk and you have to be out on a limb and you have to plant your flag in the ground and say, I'm over here, even though maybe nobody else is over there yet. You kind of have to like be willing to start a movement and be willing to be wrong and be willing to have some egg on your face. And like you did something nobody else was doing and is, has, has turned into this enormous success. And of course we have a survivorship bias where like, had you guys started this, uh, the upfront summit and like it turned into this thing that, that didn't work at all. And we probably wouldn't be talking about it now, but you know, there's a lesson to be taken here, regardless of what you're doing, whether it's venture or a company or some creative pursuit in your own life. That's like, go do something different and, and see if you can get people to follow you. Exactly. I think it's incredibly important to have conviction and, and then to take risk on that conviction. You know, it'll take time for other people to come around to it, but you got to be early to it um, in order to have any kind of differentiation. Having all of those LPs there means that, you know, all the VCs want to be there too, right? Obviously. <laughs> um, the LPs want to catch up with themselves. They want to, you know, hey, if we're going to come see this one fund, uh, we might as well see all the other funds who are locally in town. 
And hey, there's all the other friends that we are part of as well that are coming from San Francisco or New York or elsewhere in the country or even Europe, right? And then lastly, obviously, you know, how do we bring uh, obviously all the LA entrepreneurs to our event, right? That was that was something against like, look, you you will now have access, obviously not to us, but not just to us, but also to all of the other amazing investors that are in town, right? And and they're not in town for half a day where they might, you know, have only one window to meet with you and then they're off meeting somewhere else and then taking a, you know, flight back at night. It's, I mean, they're here, locked down, right? For like three days. And then of course, at the same time, you know, it's, it becomes a great platform to attract later stage companies as well. And because, you know, again, there are funds of all sizes. So really there's capital uh, and, and range of all sizes as well, right? So, so then that becomes a very um, sort of authentic and, and natural way for some of the younger and earlier stage entrepreneurs to be able to meet with, you know, folks who are a few stages ahead of them. Um, and sort of everyone, again, is concentrated in this place together for a couple of days. And, and it's just a great way to build a lot of very organic networks. Before we move on to talk more broadly about LA, it'd be great to illustrate for folks who are sort of first learning about the summit now and didn't see all the stuff on on Twitter, you know, the last few years, every time it's happening. Give us some of the craziest highlights of things you would not expect to be at an annual meeting that that has happened at uh, an Upfront Summit. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's a long list, actually. We built our own stage. We wanted, you know, something that actually, you know, you can have sort of the, the panels and keynotes on stage you know, at the right size, but at the same time, you had separate breakout rooms for, you know, folks to convene in and network and talk about other topics. Building our own stages also means that, you know, we have a lot less constraints on, you know, what we can do on stage. I think this year, probably the first time you saw a VC, uh, in this case, Mark, right onto stage in a bird scooter. You know, we brought on this year the entire Angel City Choir, which is, I don't know, <laughs> 50, 60 people on stage, drummers and musicians coming down the aisles, um, you know, something that's quite hard to get an existing venue to agree to let you do. Um, we actually turned uh, the entire outside part of the venue, which is this giant ranch, um, kind of built out a carnival theme. Uh, so we had, you know, games and food trucks and attractions and, um, and, you know, obviously that's fun and all, but, but the other point being that, you know, again, this opens up sort of the space constraints and a lot more people to come, right? Like, look, we can't have thousands of people there. Then you kind of lose that, um, serendipity, but throwing a party at night and opening it up more, you know, allows you to invite a lot more folks to come out, you know, at night. Right. And again, that, that was something that we had figured out over the years um, as a strategy to deal with the, obviously uh, you always have the struggle of who to invite and how many to invite from each firm. And what if you want to bring someone extra and, Oh, I got to swap someone out and Oh my God, we forgot someone, et cetera. Um, So, yeah. Makes sense. Going big and doing something that has a, a, a tremendous amount of creativity and entertainment um, is very uh, a very signature LA thing to do, especially relative to David was making jokes about uh, Seattle earlier that you see very different types of companies uh, often incubated up here, B2B SaaS and cloud and AI and all that stuff. So let's talk a little bit about LA. And before jumping into, we've got a great set of questions here. There was one thing we talked about earlier, and I have to ask, with the rise of Snapchat and then that became Snap, how much did that change things? Like how how sort of binary was that for the startup ecosystem and, and what changed as a result of, of that blowing up? So actually, before I answer that, um, can I add one more thing on our summit? Please. So one thing we keep trying to challenge ourselves with is let's not make the Upfront Summit just another tech summit. At the end of the day, there are more than enough of them out there and I'm sure we all go to way too many and, and try to pare back. And, you know, what's really a way, you know, to get people to come and, and spend not just a day, but multiple days, right? And hence, if you look at our speaker list and, and our attendee list, um, it's not just the tech luminary CEOs who just sold their company or sold their dirt company or, you know, longtime VC who's been doing it across multiple funds and, and firms. And you also see a lot of folks um, that are very relevant to the discussions, you know, in this country, right, uh, at that moment, right? Everything from politics to entertainment to, you know, larger societal issues around everything from healthcare to education to the diversity challenges that obviously we've seen across pretty much every industry. Um, and so we try to have a lot more folks come in from those areas and, and spread their message as well. And I think that makes it a lot more interesting. And so just as a quick example, I mean, this year we had the CEO of Time's Up come, 
uh, and speak with us, uh, obviously, about all the incredible work that they've done. We had Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses, uh, Seattle shout out, <laughs> um, who, you know, you, on the surface, you might be like, why is Duff McKagan here? Um, but on the other hand, I mean, if you look at what that band has done over the years, it really, a lot of the struggles and the successes they've had parallel sort of the ups and downs of, of an entrepreneur. You know, just hearing that story from a slightly different lens, right, from someone that's not just directly doing what you're doing, I think is sometimes can be more powerful. We had Adam Schiff come out and speak slash not speak about obviously what he's seen and that's ongoing with all the investigations in the government. And these are all something that's slightly outside of what you would typically see at a technology summit. Um, and we think that really helps in getting people to come as well as sort of increasing dialogue on some very important issues that, you know, ultimately affects all of us. Cannot underscore how different this is from <laughs> your typical VC. You're just catching a, a yeah. glimpse of what is uh, in David's eye for the uh, the Wave Summit this year. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be a summit yet. <laughs> we we need to we need to crawl before we walk here, uh, and let alone run like you guys. Oh, actually, now we're it's back to the snap thing. Sorry. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, but yeah, perfect transition. To LA having anchor companies right locally that grow up here and continue to thrive and, and spin off talent. That's critical to any ecosystem. Um, Snap has obviously been a tremendous anchor for Los Angeles. You know, one of the most recent anchors over the last few years. And, and, you know, I think people kind of forget that Snap is not just a mobile company or um, a media company, right? I mean, like they're a full stack company that has engineering talent, you know, from back end to front end to hardware, right? They have offices around the world. They've bought companies, you know, from all over the world. Um, it's it's the type of company that was built and you sort of always from the beginning with very high ambitions and wanting to build a long lasting independent company. And those are the kind of ones that obviously over time, not only trains talent as well as spins off talent to start new companies and create sort of that second time, third time entrepreneur, right? As well as, you know, it creates that, more voluminous angel capital and angel investors to sort of help the ecosystem at the earlier stages. Snap in particular, and, and there are co other companies like that as well here in town, uh, obviously like SpaceX, that really has done an incredible job drawing talent from across the country and, and really across the globe to come to Los Angeles. I probably overhype them sort of specifically. I think you're, you're, you're right. There's more, um, there's more anchor tenants and, and has been many anchor tenants long before. Right, yeah. I mean, right. Games is down here. They have 3,000 people. I think in LA, they have almost 2,000 people and they have over 3,000 people globally. Tinder, of course, was uh, you know still in West Hollywood. And yeah, there's been, there's a lot of companies here now that's that's been added and been successful. Um, and, you know, people forget LA is obviously very large. Um, you go down to Orange County, Orange County, right? Question about whether that's LA or not, but, um, you know, it's close enough where, you know, people don't remember that in Orange County, there has been you know, some of the most successful gaming companies, right? Like Activision, like Blizzard, right? Or that, you know, hey, it turns out there is an incredible cybersecurity um, talent base down there, right? With companies like Silence or in CrowdStrike. A lot of defense, right? People forget, um, you know, why is SpaceX here, right? The existing, the aerospace industry has always been strong in Los Angeles, right? Like you, if you fly into LAX, you'll see, right? Boeing, Lothar Grumman, Lockheed Martin, right? All of those tenants, you go up to Pasadena, obviously that's where JPL is. Um, you go up into the valley, Amgen is created there, right? There's actually more uh, you know, life scientists in Los Angeles than I think anywhere else in the country, right? Again, these are this is greater LA, uh, and that's obviously how we how we think about it. And and I think it really allows for the training of a very diverse set of talent and mobility of that talent. So so you know, with this new generation of anchors, you know, with companies like Snap, um, what I would argue started off as like, hey, you should move down to LA and join this hot company and hey, at least come try it for a couple of years. And if things don't work out, you can always go back to the Bay Area or go back to New York or, or wherever. That very quickly turned into, oh, it's really nice here, it turns out. LA does kind of win on, on lifestyle and just sort of a more inclusive and, and diverse place to live. And, and these people then, like I was saying earlier, then obviously go on to find their next jobs and create their next companies and make their next investments and and, and ends up having more of a local flavor. And then and, and that's what we want to encourage. 
I wanted to get your take on what are the superpowers of the LA ecosystem? So sort of sectors, talent, concentrations, things like that. There's a way to answer this question that's like, well, you know, people mischaracterize this and we actually have have strength in a lot of areas. Um, But like if you had to generalize, what things tend not to thrive in LA and tend to maybe be something that you should look elsewhere for? LA has the benefit of a very large and diverse population and a lot of fresh graduates. In fact, it has more engineering graduates every year than we else in the country. Um, and that's really just a base of talent that the, the question is, how do you hold on to them, right? And how do you encourage them um, to continue to stay here and, and build companies? So when you combine that raw talent then with entrepreneurs, obviously, especially in certain areas of strength, um, that's how you start to build out little ecosystems here and there. And then and ultimately, when you have enough of them, you get into sort of this unstoppable force, right? So obviously, Hollywood is in LA. I actually always like to say that Hollywood is not the biggest industry in LA, actually. It, it does not sort of um, dominate the LA landscape as much as, for example, financial, financial service. I think actually the biggest industry in LA is healthcare, if I remember correctly. There are actually an incredible number of very large healthcare systems uh, that are here. And obviously, they employ a lot of people. And then also the aerospace industry, obviously, Less people, but higher dollar uh, dollar value, right? And and that has continued to be here as well. You know what you get with with Hollywood is obviously storytelling uh, and just sort of generations of not only, of course, creative people who gets trained uh, and who want to come here to to build their careers, but really, if you think about you know sort of the media industry, a lot of it actually is about taking on risk, right? And and trying to get someone, right? Get a producer to buy into your little script and get someone to believe in you. And then they introduce you to the next person. And, and oh my God, you finally have enough capital to start putting together a reel and, and get some of your initial actors and actresses sign up. And then it balloons from there. And, and wow, overnight success. And also then you are the one, right? <laughs> Obviously I'm being a little facetious here, but, but there's a lot of entrepreneurial struggles to try to get content produced. Obviously sort of how that ultimately happens, how that distributes very different from technology startups, but a lot of that same risk-taking and entrepreneurship, you know, entrepreneurial spirit is there and has always been a part of this city. Another, I think, very important thing to think about is you just have a very large and diverse population as your customers, right? And I think that is a reason why you look at a lot of... Which is definitely different from San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, of course, New York is enormous as well, a lot of people there, um, but... New York is, I, I would argue, you know, like you have Manhattan and you have areas outside of Manhattan, right? And, and they're actually quite distinct and quite different. Um, versus here in Los Angeles, I really think of LA as 20 cities rolled into one. Hence, you see a lot of, for example, consumer tech companies uh, and services or companies that basically directly face consumers. If they didn't for open their first office or, or if they didn't launch in Los Angeles, usually that is the second one, right? And so you take Uber as an example. I mean, Uber LA was effectively where they experimented with most of their new services that they rolled out with, right? Again, the idea being that, hey, if you can make it work in LA, <laughs> it has 20 microcosms built into one, I'll probably work elsewhere in the country, right? I mean, I remember in the early days of Uber, LA being the first place I really used it because like that was, it was so game-changing for, you know, living and being in LA. Yeah. Oh my God, drive everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Actually, as a small side, the Uber and Lyft for the world, and, and nowadays, you know, a lot of the micro mobility players like Bird, their repercussions are felt probably more strongly in LA than anywhere else in this country. Um, like, for example, I don't own a car, right? I actually just Uber and Lyft away everywhere, or I Bird to the train to go to downtown, right? And that saves me, you know, that takes me an hour, not two hours, right? Um, My wife Jenny did her PhD at UCLA, and like that was twenty ten till. Well, she finished in 2016, but anyway, in 2010 to 20, you know, 14, that was unfathomable. Like to not have a car in LA, like you'd be nuts. Yeah, exactly, and uh, rapidly changing. Well, Kevin, I want to pin you down on that other question too. What What is LA not good at? One of the things that that is more challenging, especially as a company scale, right, is having the right um, go to market talent. And if you especially look at areas like uh, enterprise SaaS, they're just such a high concentration of those companies in Silicon Valley. That is where all of your, you know, enterprise sales 
marketing, go-to-market, customer success talent is, right? And and some of that you can try to replicate from other industries. Um, and LA has pretty much every major industry in town with meaningful Fortune 500 representation. But those are exactly the kind of things that come with, you know, experience, an actual Rolodex built up over 10 plus years that will get better uh, in LA and elsewhere, right? In other ecosystems as well, as you continue to see more diverse companies being built here. And again, kind of like Snap, attracting the talent from elsewhere um, so that you have more of that base here as well. Before we leave LA, one last question is, you know, Wave, I mean, we're seeing lots of people moving to LA either to start companies or join companies, you know, from, from Silicon Valley, from Seattle, from New York, from elsewhere. Somebody shows up, you know, they're, you know, a great PM engineer, what have you from, uh, say, Silicon Valley, and they show up in LA. What's the best way to you know, integrate into the ecosystem down there. We love meeting other people who are coming to LA. In fact, we end up actually with a lot of, I'm thinking about coming to LA and I wonder who I should call and let's talk to some entrepreneurs there. Let's talk to some people who work there. Let's talk to a couple of local VCs. And so we're always super happy to jump on a phone and, and, you know, get to know folks who, who want to come to LA and sort of give you, you know, our view on the ecosystem, how it's evolved and, you know, the good and the bad, right. And everything from, career to actually trying to build a life here in town. So always happy to do that. Um, Two, you know, I think if you're actually at a point where you're more serious about moving here and you're, you're actually visiting, I guarantee you probably, if you're visiting pretty much every week, we're throwing some sort of event at our office. Um, and we have a pretty sizable roof deck so we can fit, you know, a hundred plus people. And, and really we just try to have as many community oriented events, whether it's to connect local entrepreneurs to, you know, have outsiders have a, uh, you know, at a glance sort of what the local ecosystem of talent looks like to bring experts, talk about, you know, areas that, you know, they excel at and to, you know, spread some of that knowledge to local, local talent. Like we're always doing something. So, you know, reach out to us. You'll probably end up meeting us and meeting a bunch of other folks as well. And, and you know, kill two birds with one stone. It's always challenging, right? Trying to balance your time as a VC and, and sort of figuring out where you should be spending time meeting with people. And so one of the things that we actually did was, you know, was the hiring of Megan, our, our head of talent. She has uh, now sort of done an incredible job with really organizing a lot of the, what you sort of just described as folks that are inquiring and thinking about moving down here. Um, and she has resources that, you know, that she's built up that she can share very easily. Um, she can do that call with you as well. If you're not, already getting directly to one of us, she will sort of very often funnel that then to the right person, right? And that right person could be me. It could be one of my partners. It could be one of our principals, or it could be, you know, directly, hey, you need to talk to a VP of Inch over at Snap because that's kind of the type of company you're thinking about, right? Hit us up, leverage us, you know, we're more than happy to help. All right. So I want to move on to, uh, uh, we have a little section here called investing in opinions. And I know we didn't give you a ton of time to, to think about this, sending the outline over beforehand, but curious to get your thoughts. What's something that you believe right now uh, that you think is either sort of counterintuitive, that it sort of uh, dawned on you at one point, and you're like, oh, you know, that that's not something that, uh, you know, most people are, are thinking about or continuing even further in that direction, contrarian. Everybody's believing something over here and, and uh, Kevin's dancing on a different uh, hill over there. Since gaming is fresh on my mind, both I just made a new investment that got announced on Monday and also obviously the Game Developer Conference just happened and tons of things going on there. Can you talk about the investment? Oh, yeah. 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 I just made a new investment. Um, actually, Seattle company. It's half Seattle and half LA, and then uh, the LA talent is actually moving up Seattle. It's a company called Straight Bombay. Um, they're a gaming company trying to build much more cooperative and social games. And both of them are veterans of the industry. I mean, like Chet had, was a decade-plus veteran at Valve, and both on the game design side, but as oh, well. Oh, Chet from Valve. He's awesome. Yeah, he's amazing, That's right? Cool. And, and, and obviously then he also went on to just be one of the biggest voices in you know, with developers in gaming because he took on all that evangelism work with, you know, the arrival of virtual reality. And he teamed up with Kimberly Vole, uh, who originally from Vancouver, has been down in LA the last few years working at Riot, um, Riot Games. And I think really what's super special about her is she's actually a professor in computer science. Um, she specifically focuses on artificial intelligence systems uh, within games and focuses on, you know, how do you create more cooperative and sort of friendly and team-based player interactions. Um, and so really when she was hired into Valve almost four years ago, a lot of it was to, hey, look, 
League of Legends is, you know, billion dollar plus game, super successful. Tons of people play it, but it's been many years and the player community itself has become quite unfriendly to new players. You know, how do you actually build product to change what, you know, rewards and punishes people in the game so that you can foster a healthier community, right? And so she actually built up that entire player behavior system team. Then that, you know, sort of spread across all the games that they were working on, um, looked at a lot of internal data, built out some machine learning systems, et cetera. So she's she's going to be spending a lot of time, you know, working on all the AI backend systems. Um, so anyway, super exciting to, to have back those two. Um, and yeah, it wired on Friday and announced on Monday. So nice. That was perfect time for recruiting <laughs> at GDC. I bet. I bet. All right. So what's your contrarian bet there? I think especially investors in Silicon Valley and, and or really just maybe investors outside of Los Angeles and, and investors outside New York as well, to a certain degree, have historically viewed content businesses as less scalable, less, less venture business, hits driven. Um, and I have a bit of a different view on that. I think especially within, with games, I think of them actually no different than any other consumer tech business. Um, and in fact, I think more positively about them than most other consumer tech businesses other than maybe social networks, right? And again, the reason being that, you know, I think what's critical is, do you have a product and a team and a culture that sort of your job and your drive is to continue to iterate on that product uh, with user feedback in mind? Games are actually naturally designed where you just have to do that, period, right? Games don't get made and just stay static. I mean, the most popular games in the world have been popular for like 10 plus years, right? Like, or more, right? I mean, like, I think World of Warcraft just passed like 16 years or something, right? Um, League of Legends, we just mentioned, you know, that's been, what, year 10 or 11 now? CSGO, Counter-Strike, like all of those, um, even, you know, more recent games like Candy Crush, I mean. It's still not that recent, other than like Fortnite and Apex Legends, like a lot of these games have been around for a while. For a long time. And that's because games really are actually a live, live product, a live service. Um, and you live or die by how you, you know, how much you continue to iterate and experiment on that, right? And I think, so along those lines, you know, it's not, hey, you're going to mess in a game company to get one shot, right? No, like every week they're putting on the build and trying something new. That level of cadence, um, you know, if you can assess the team correctly, right? And, you know, if they're not just trying to build something that's similar to most other games on the market, I think that's a super exciting area to be investing in. And that's really one of the driving reasons why I just invested in, in Chad and Kimberly's companies. I think one way to think about it is that game companies, especially like how you're you're describing them, can be more like software companies. So there's sort of more of an investment thesis you could have around their iteratively solving this problem based on feedback. I really like it from the other direction too. That is, look, a lot of consumer experience companies that consumer social or consumer entertainment are like game companies anyway, where they do have to create that magical moment. And even though it's not maybe technically a game, it has a lot of the same characteristics anyway. And if people are, are comfortable investing in, in consumer, it's not a hard leap to make that say, look, like games have a lot of those same sort of difficult to find the magic characteristics, but potentially even more upside once you do find that magic. Exactly. I think game companies are, again, you have a lot more ways to monetize a game. And in fact, most new you know, user engagement tactics, monetization strategies, a lot of those are pioneered in the gaming industry. You look at the most successful game companies, they are incredibly profitable, right? I mean, like what? Super, Supercell is still three, four hundred, like a few hundred people, right? And they do billions in revenues a year, right? Um, and, and I mean, I, I just kind of challenge you to find really any other consumer product that has anywhere near that level. In fact, that should probably beat out most enterprise products as well. And again, you know, I think that's something that, again, people see it numerically, right? They see some of the most successful companies, but they have a lot of almost instinctual fear of like, but how do you get there? And, and isn't it only like one out of a thousand, right? And they're like, what? Look, venture is a history of business, right? Like, <laughs> so yeah, and none of these things are easy. <laughs> Pot, meat, kettle. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you look across not all venture firms, but a lot of really, really good venture firms, you know, you, you guys included, understand this about the games industry, that it is a very viable venture investable category. Um, but if you look at some of the top returners in some really great funds, like I'm thinking about Excel, I believe, and our friends at Excel can can correct us if if we're wrong, but I believe the top two 
returning companies in the history of Excel, number one is Facebook, and I believe number two is Supercell, which is pretty incredible. And like nobody thinks about that. Yeah, exactly. Kevin's like, I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what's also changed a little bit now is gaming companies, much like any other type of tech companies, obviously goes through cycles as well. And a lot of those cycles are driven by changes in technology, right? So like Supercell and King, right? They became such successful companies, partially because they were built in a new era of distribution, right? Like mobile became became a thing. Before that, you know, all games were on PC and Zynga console. and Facebook. Zynga and Facebook, right? Um, you know, before retail box game days, right? Activision and EA, right? Or the first generation of online game stores, right? That was Valve, right? With Steam. Now, again, we're kind of facing this, to your earlier comment about Google Stadia. You know, look, whether ultimately it works or not, what is exciting is that Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Epic, Discord, uh, EA, all of these companies are spending tons of dollars to try to improve distribution in games. And that is only beneficial, I think, to developers. You have more sources of capital and better publishing deals. And obviously, I think very much that it is more choice for the consumer. Uh, Again, people are competing with lots of dollars. Pricing is coming down. uh, And I think you'll have more choice. So again, now is another moment, I feel like, this sort of um, shift where I think it's time, it's a good time to be building a gaming company and creating something, you know, generational. All right, Kevin, that's a that's a super good transition. Google Stadia, y- your thoughts and, and maybe a quick what it is for uh, for folks who haven't read about it yet. So the idea behind Google Stadia and similarly Microsoft xCloud and Amazon's rumored service and, and everybody else's is, you know, do we have enough internet speeds? Do we have the right, you know, sort of more modern networking technologies? Uh, do we have better hardware that have that latency that you can actually stream a game to your computer, to your TV screen, to your phone, uh, and be able to play them instantly without having to own an Xbox console or a PC or download a game, right? That's 40 gigs. And and so basically, how do you, can you actually um, play a game much like you can instantly click a button and watch a movie on Netflix? Um, and I think, by the way, this is not the first time it's happened, right? Obviously, there was a previous generation of companies like Gaikai and OnLive uh, that try to do this as well. A lot of people... Don't speak very fondly of that of that era. Well, the tech wasn't there yet. Well, if you actually dig into it, the tech was there for specific types of games with specific geographic constraints, right? Like if you were playing on the West Coast uh, with other people on the West Coast, connected to servers on the West Coast in a game that is not extremely fast moving, it worked. It actually worked. Right. If it's a turn based, like if it's like Hearthstone or something that's not super graphical, not real time. There was a lot of ways that uh, a lot of types of games that it could have been suited for. And I think this time around, you know, obviously the technology has improved tremendously. But again, it's going to be an adoption cycle, right? Like, am I going to be skeptical about playing uh, an extremely fast moving and high accuracy game like, you know, the ones you mentioned earlier, like Fortnite or, 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 or Apex Legends, right? Yeah. That I might have some doubts about, right, on a streaming service, unless I have, you know, Google Fiber and and, and live, live in San Francisco or LA or New York, right? But I think we'll get there. We'll 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 get there. Are we going to see any sort of breakout in the next sort of twelve to eighteen months uh, with with, uh, with Stadia or a cloud gaming service, or are we sort of like still on that? You know, we're still three, four, or five years out. I personally think it'll take a little bit longer, right, um, three to five years, as opposed to one to two years. Um, partially, it's for some of the underlying technology reasons. Partially, actually, it's also related to types of content. The type of content that gets made and is now popular on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, etc., are not exactly the same as network television series. And I think the same thing has to happen. More bingeable. Yeah, yeah. right? They, they change the format, uh, right? Because again, you have you know more options to consume whenever you want instantaneously and, and that you know historically was not possible, right? And two, if I now all of a sudden have a library of 100 games, I can try it whenever I want. The existing behavior of you get super obsessed, typically it was one to three games at any point in time and spend all your hours in those games. That's going to have to change a little bit, right? Like what's the value of a whole library if I'm only playing two games at once? And not to mention, as we talked about earlier, those games last like 10 years, right? There is a sense of like, if you're a game developer, a content developer, you have to think about making games that are one, obviously very suited to sort of immediate onboarding, right? Like you click a button, I can get in and I get it. I don't have to go through an hour long tutorial. And two, these have to be games that I actually want to come back and play after six months. If there's so much hurdle to come back and play, uh, then I'm never going to touch your game again. And you only have one shot in a giant library and good luck on making any money as developer, right? I mean, like you brought up Hearthstone. That's the kind of game where 
There's an entire strategy behind the deck of cards that you're trying to build to compete against other people. Well, guess what? In six months, what are cons- what's considered the top decks in that game have changed. So if you come back in, you're literally relearning what is currently popular and working. That's a lot of work and a lot of investment that only sort of the most the strongest fans of that game will do, will, will sort of put themselves through, right? Versus, especially if you think, you know, services like this opens access because price is lower and you don't need a console, you, you're going to end up having more and more casual players. And, and I think it'll be challenging for them to try to play, you know, the same types of games that we currently play that, that are just frankly less friendly towards, you know, recurring play behaviors over time. Cool. Well, deeply appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that. Of course. I will always take upon a chance to talk about games <laughs> <laughs> and play games with anyone who wants to. <laughs> this is perfect. This is usually the part in the show where we, you know, ask guests where listeners can find you on the internet. We should definitely share your, you know, Twitter and, uh, and other ways, but, uh, are you on Twitch or are there, are hey, can there, we watch uh, you stream ways people can game with you? Yeah. I don't, I don't think you want to watch me stream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm probably not the most interesting streamer. Um, there are people with a lot, a lot more interesting person. I, I think streaming honestly is mostly about your personality and less about the game. Uh, and, and like, it's just incredible the amount of talent uh, that's out there. And, and I am definitely not one of them. I am on Twitter. You can follow me at Kevin Y Zane on Twitter. I do write blog posts here and there. So that's actually one of my goals uh, for this year. Um, so you can follow me on medium as well. And then lastly, Probably the only game that I really have time to play now every once in a while consistently is is uh, Overwatch that's uh, made by Blizzard. So if you you know if you play games on Battle.net, um, feel free to shoot me a note and we can play together. Love it. This is a first for acquired. <laughs> <laughs> the theme of the episode, the theme for you guys is you know um, be contrarian, line up with your strategy, and go hard into it. Love it. Yeah, exactly. Indeed. All right. Well, Kevin, thank you so much. It's it's been real. Thank you guys so much for hosting me. This was super fun. Listeners, we will talk to you very soon. Live on the scene. The playoffs are starting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lyft IPO coming at you end of next week. We will be there. See you then. See ya.